0: Coming up on the Keto Camp podcast, we have Mr. High Intensity Health himself, Mike Mutzel.
1: You know, if you look at heart rate variability and mortality, if you look at various, you know, cancer outcomes, cancer reoccurrence, congestive heart failure, all-cause mortality. I mean, this is, this is not just woo stuff. I mean, there's hard data showing that low heart rate variability suggests you're not going to live as long compared to people that have higher heart rate variability. And the cool part about this, this isn't like a gene defect, there's something you can do here. It's very, I don't want to say malleable, but it's very modifiable and that's what's really cool.
0: Greetings, keto campers. I'm pumped to share a buddy of mine, Mike Mutzel. Now, Mike Mutzel is a thought leader in the health space, and you probably have heard or seen his work before. On this episode, we're going to talk all about the ketogenic diet. Mike is somebody who really digs into the research and puts his thinking cap on, and he thinks outside of the conventional norm really smart intelligent dude and i asked mike like what got you into keto out of all the things out there why keto as a tool in the health toolbox and he explains why he explains what keto does for the gut bacteria he's also going to break down the carnivore diet and who would benefit from something like a zero carb diet we're going to get into gut health we're going to talk about muscle for longevity we're going to talk about veganism the game changers documentary that's so popular we're going to debunk some of that and so much more. Mike is a great person for you to study. So make sure you grab your pen and paper. You're going to take a lot of notes. He's going to break down a lot of the science when it comes to the ketogenic diet. And before I bring Mr. High Intensity Health on the podcast for you, I want to let you know that I'm super grateful for you right now, this very moment, because out of all the podcasts out there, you chose this one. And here at Keto Camp, we are on a mission to educate and inspire 1 billion people on planet Earth. So we are grateful that you're part of this mission. If you could leave the show a rating and review on Apple Podcasts, it really makes a big difference for the show. So please hit pause right now and take about 30 seconds to leave a rating and review on Apple Podcasts. And speaking of which, I'm gonna get to the rating and review of the day. This one comes from Embrey, quote, enhance your knowledge. Ben provides useful information in an understandable manner. He will expand and enhance your knowledge. I love listening to this podcast, unquote. And Bray, thank you so much for first and foremost, listening to the podcast and leaving a rating and review means so much, thank you. Hey, before I bring Mike on here, I wanna announce two things. Number one, if you're looking to start the ketogenic diet the right way and also implement some intermittent fasting, I have a free 12-page ebook for you called The Keto Kickstart Guide. In it, you're going to find some meal plans, some instructions, and it's a great template for anybody who is starting the keto diet and they're just so confused by all the information out there. You can get that for free over at ketokickstartguide.com. Again, that's ketokickstartguide.com. This episode of the Keto Camp Podcast is sponsored by my favorite keto oil, which is olive oil, but specifically the Fresh Pressed Olive Oil Club, loaded in polyphenols and antioxidants. It will make your throat burn. It might make your tongue a little fuzzy. And you know, when it does that, when an olive oil does that, it's one of the good ones. It'll help your body reduce inflammation so you can get more results with your keto diet. And it tastes really good. We worked out a deal for keto campers to get a $39 bottle of the Fresh Pressed Olive Oil Club for one buck. That's right, $39 bottle discounted to $1 if you head over to keto camp com, that's camp with the K keto camp oliveoil.com you could claim that $39 for a buck before I bring Mike on here please take a screenshot of this episode of the keto camp podcast and post it on your Instagram story or Instagram profile and tag me and Mike in it I'll be sure to see that and share it on my story and we'll get some other keto campers following you back. My Instagram handle is at thebenazadi, T-H-E-B-E-N-A-Z-A-D-I, and Mike Mutzel's Instagram handle is metabolic underscore Mike. I'll put both of that in the notes of this podcast, take a screenshot, tag us both, and I'll be happy to share that on my story. Now let's get into this conversation, talking all things keto and more with Mike Mutzel. Mike Mutzel earned his bachelor's in biology from Western Washington University in 2006 and completed his master's in clinical nutrition from the University of Bridgeport in 2015 and is a graduate of the Institute for Functional Medicine, IFM. In April of 2014, Mike published his first book, Belly Fat Effect, The Secret About How Your Diet, Intestinal Health, and Gut Bacteria Help You Burn Fat. Mike Mutzel, welcome to the Keto Camp podcast, brother.
1: Hey, Ben. Thanks so much for having me on, man. Great to be here.
0: Yeah, it's great to be here with you as well. I love the work that you're doing. I just shared that with you. I wanted to share it live on this recording. You're doing such amazing work with high intensity health, with your book, The Belly Fat Effect, and just everything that you do, your, your lectures, your content is so deep and, and so needed in this world. And before we get into all the things that you're doing and that you're going to be doing in the future, let's rewind real quick and talk about how you got involved in the health space.
1: Oh, man. Um. Well, I'll keep it super short. You know, it was serendipitously, honestly. I didn't know what I was going to do when I was in my senior year in college because I got good grades. I was pre-med. I basically, for like three years, got straight A's. Then I kind of hurt my back deadlifting and didn't know what the heck I was going to do. Sports were a big part of my life. I was a pre-med undergrad. And to make it very long story short, I started bike racing and, uh, you know, cycling and all that. This was back when Lance Armstrong was doing the Tour de France and I was doing a lot of weird things too. I was working at this vitamin store, taking a lot of soy protein and, and my testosterone. I just got depressed. For the first time in my entire life, I was like 21, 22 years old, got super depressed. I literally couldn't focus in school. Like I used to be that kid in the front of organic chemistry and biochemistry class, like calling out answers, like got straight A's and all this stuff. And I'm not saying I'm a super smart guy, believe me, my prior to college, like I made so many mistakes and barely you know, graduated high school, but I, things clicked for me when I got into science in college. And so I got, I got really sick and I didn't know what the heck was wrong with me. And so I just went to the doctor. I said, I need to run some labs. I can barely remember anything. Like it, it was the most weird moment in my life. You know, um, you know, I knew about hormones and stuff. And I was like, I just want to test my hormones because I had like zero libido. My total testosterone was like 92. And for everyone listening, like the range goes from like, you know, 200 on the low end or hundred to like 1500. Right. So I had the testosterone level of like, you know a, a cross-fitting female right like it was super low and i had no idea what was going on with me so to make a very long story short after that so i got on some testosterone cream andrew joe cream because the doctors didn't know what they just said oh you this is idiopathic hypogonadism and i thought well, why would that even be like i was healthy played varsity football started on the football team could power lift and deadlift and squat heavy weights like well, why would it just all of a sudden you know why would i get low testosterone and so I realized that doctors, you know, this was my senior year in college, realized that doctors, you know, they're busy, they're doing their own thing. And so I started to go into PubMed because I used PubMed as a, you know, a biology undergrad and was looking up things like, you know, what's in soy, you know, phytoestrogens, like started to like figure out the things that I was doing, how that was affecting my hormones. And I was like, why didn't these doctors, this endocrinologist in Seattle that I ended up going to, he didn't say any of this stuff to me. He was at this big clinic. So I thought, man, this medical thing's kind of messed up, right? So anyway, so I, I got, you know, part of my life on track, you know, stopped the protein, really cut down on the exercise, realized that overtraining can affect testosterone. So yeah, so I finally got my grades back, got out of the depression hole, graduated college, and I still had to like, you know, make up for that. Those, I got some C's and B's, and it's hard to get into med school when you, you know, get C's and B's. So um, I was like, right, I'm just going to work for a year, intern with an MD, uh, and see where I can go from there. And I put my resume on monster.com. I don't even know if people still use it. And uh, got this job as a sales rep selling supplements to doctors. So this is a billion-dollar market. Many people don't understand. It's called the professional, you know, supplement space, practitioner channel. And so there's about I don't know, maybe 10 to 15 different companies that only sell their products to licensed healthcare practitioners, pharmacists, compounding pharmacists, uh, integrative doctors, naturopaths, chiropractors. So I got to you know meet with so many great uh, practitioners in, in Colorado and in, in the Western U.S. that were practicing this thing called functional medicine. And, and this is going back to 2006. Right now it's Everyone's talking about integrated functional medicine. And so I really got a good grasp in, you know, the root cause resolution. You know, conventional medicine is great for a lot of things, for acute care. I mean, look, if you have, if you get in a major accident, you cut your finger off, you're paying Christmas lights and you fall off a ladder, I don't want you going to a naturopath and getting box flower remedies and and Homeopathic. So you need to go to uh, you know, an allopathic doctor or an ER, right? That's where medicine really shines. Where traditional medicine doesn't really shine is a chronic acute, you know, chronic conditions that uh, are lifestyle mediated. So dietary, you know, poor diet for 20, 30 years where you get congestive heart failure or diabetes or you know, myocognitive impairment. You know, addressing those lifestyle-induced disorders through the lens of conventional medicine really ultimately fails and that's why if you look at healthcare expenditures in the US they're disproportionately way more expensive and the outcomes are not nearly as good as other countries because we're trying to a- apply this acute care model to a chronic lifestyle induced disease and that simply does not work and anyway so that I got a good you know understanding of all that through this the, working with these functional medicine doctors I did an internship and ended up working as a nutritionist with this MD realized through that process that you know what medicine is cool but I don't want to I was saying, even as a nutritionist, I was saying the same thing over and over to patients. Uh, And I realized, gosh, there's got to be a better way to do this. And thanks to the internet, now I do do that and help people, you know, say things one time and educate, you know, tens of thousands of people with like one video. Um, Because I realized the impact of sitting knee-to-knee with someone. And while that's totally needed, we need to sit down and help people adjust their diet and adjust sleep and stress management and all these important things but I just realized like with, with you know with, I just believe that you know I, I can get better at making videos I can do this in a, in a better way and I'm, I'm still working on my, my practice and my trade but you no know, so here I am now it's like 12 13 years later and uh, still work with doctors and uh, have a big network of doctors I work with and and part of how I got into doing the YouTube stuff and the reason why I do that is there's a, many great practitioners who are great in their clinical skills but aren't good marketers. And I thought, you know what, I can help you get your message out to more people because I kind of have this marketing thing. I, I, I gravitate towards that. And that's how I started making these videos. In fact, you know, back in 2008 was my first teleconference, Dan Kalish and I have these other people so this is before webinars and zoom and all this stuff and so what we would do is have people call into a bridge line and we're talking on the telephone and I would interview someone so uh, that's how I got started then started doing webinars back in 2011 and then eventually YouTube so yeah sorry if that was a long-winded answer
0: no, it was great it was so it's so fascinating to see how you went from you know a b c and then what you're doing now uh, so you launched the YouTube channel uh, what year
1: Well, that's a good question. So I I first launched Mike Mutzel YouTube channel in 2012, like January. And if you go look at it, you'll think it's super funny if people want to just look because a lot of people get scared about making YouTube videos because they think they have to be perfect, especially when they start. And I, I recommend people just you're going to get better through practice. And so you just need to put stuff out there and you're going to get better over time. So um, my first uh, YouTube channel was, was the Mike Muscle channel and the videos totally sucked. You guys would laugh your butts off if you went back and looked at them. And I realized that I kind of need to restart and I didn't want to have a channel under my name. I don't know why. I thought, you know what, because eventually I would like to interview or have like my wife do cooking stuff or have a fitness expert host a fitness day, you know, so I created this high intensity health channel in 2014. So Really, kind of practiced in 2012, and then didn't really take it seriously until 2014.
0: Yeah, that's so interesting. I, I kind of have a similar story because I started my YouTube channel Benazotti back probably in 2012 as well. And, and yeah, I sucked as well. I was just putting myself out there, and then I got together with uh, my coach, and also he's a good friend of mine, Sean Croxton. I, I believe you know Sean as well. Uh, over a year ago. And he's like, you got to start a new channel. <laughs> you got to start something new. And that's where kind of Keto Camp spawned. And, uh, it, and it's grown so much because of that, that change. And the same thing with you. Like your channel has, I think the last time I checked, uh, what, 200, over 250,000 subscribers, right? Yeah. Yeah. And, and, and what you're doing is so important because what you said earlier was there's doctors and practitioners that are so brilliant talking about, you know, how the body works and working knee to knee, which is so much needed. But what you're doing, you're talking about that as well, but you're getting it out to the masses on a level that they're not doing. And so many people are scared of putting a camera and talking in front of the camera because it is weird, especially the first time you do it. But if you do it enough times, you get better and better and better. And if you need confidence, if you need a confident builder, go to YouTube and put Mike Mutzo and watch his older YouTube channel, and then you'll get some confidence from there.
1: Well, yeah, I mean, if you look at Joe Rogan's channel, I mean, he's got one of the biggest YouTube, I mean, from a podcast interview standpoint, I mean, gosh, his reach is probably bigger than CNN and MSNBC and all these companies. And so I went back and actually it was pretty interesting. It was I believe it was January of 2015 and he's on his couch or some couch with a buddy and they're like, oh, I think we're going to do this thing. And they're holding a microphone. So, so you would never think like, I, I think people just, naturally assume that someone who's made it so to speak or whatever or was who's popular is always good like they were born and you know in their in their womb they had a video camera or a microphone that's not always the case and so i i think i always share that because i get doctors that email me all the time hey mike what do i need to do to start marketing and seo and i say just start making videos and get yourself out there and they're really intimidated and i send them joe rogan's first video that he published on his channel and they're like oh, well wow, that's Kind of interesting. I wouldn't have thought that that's how, you know, uncut he was because it was not polished by any means.
0: I love that. Yeah, it's a great, it's a great tip right there. Actually, I, I do something similar as well. I'll, I'll go on YouTube and I'll go to somebody's channel, somebody like you or or uh, Thomas Thomas DeLauer, doc, Dr. Eric Berg, somebody who has a huge YouTube uh, subscriber base, and I filter the videos on oldest first, and I go out and watch those, and I see how they're fumbling and messing up. So I recommend doing that. Go to oldest first and watch those first videos, and everybody starts at step one and they worked their way up. Everybody who's a master was once a disaster and that's exactly what you're talking about here. So I hope that really made an impression with people who wanna get themselves out there, but they've been holding themselves back. It's just a matter of getting started. Once you get started, once you commit, the creativity will follow as you see with, with Mike here. So then you got into a lot of the, the gut microbiome, gut research, you wrote a book, a wonderful book, The Belly Fat Effect. What got you fascinated with the gut, Mike?
1: Yeah, that's a great question. So yeah, that was my thing from, I don't know, 2008 to maybe 2015. And it was really working at that clinic that I was telling you about where I was doing an internship and then eventually became a nutritionist and coach there. Uh, One of the medical assistants was morbidly obese and she got gastric bypass, but she didn't change her diet. And so anyway, every week I would see her and and she was like a new person and leaner, leaner, leaner. And I thought, this is totally crazy because she was eating the same foods that she was eating when she was overweight or obese, and now she's lean. And I thought, how could this be this calories in, calories out kind of kind of thing? I mean, if it, you know, she's eating pretty much the same stuff, maybe smaller quantities, but again, her body weight is lower. So, you know, on a proportionate metabolic, you know, level, she's kind of consuming the same amount of calories per body weight. So I started to dive into the research, and I would spend a lot of time, the location of the clinic was in Aurora, where University of Colorado Medical School is, and a little pro tip for anyone who wants to you know, dig into research, just go to your local medical school library. You can get access to all the articles for free, because it's hard to access as a, as a layman if you don't have an academic email address, or if you're not enrolled in a university, you're going to have to pay $30, $40, $60 for an article. So I would spend a lot of time going to the, you know, it's been hours, and they just have these, you know, all these files of, of microbiome stuff. So I was curious, I'm like, how does bariatric surgery work? Like what are the mechanisms at play here? And I was so blown away at what I found and, and a lot of research and to this day still supports the idea that the gut microbiome and gut hormones are manipulated in such a way when individuals get bariatric or gastric bypass surgery, that that's one of the major about 70 to 90 percent of the mechanism of action causing this weight loss shift. And so I thought, this is crazy because when I asked these doctors, because I would, you know, I was in a unique position. I was like a salesman, so I could go ask doctors, "Hey, have you ever had a patient undergo bariatric surgery?" They're like, "Oh, yeah, let, you know, yeah, sure. I remember this patient, Susie, Sally, whatever." And I said, "How do you think it works?" They're like, "Oh, it's just nutrient restriction." And I would say, mm, "Okay, interesting." And I would go back and read more about it, you know. So that's how I got into it. Uh, so yeah, it's, I mean, it's super fascinating. And here's kind of just a take home message for people listening, you know. All the crappy food, the McDonald's, the processed carbohydrates, the fried foods—we think that yeah, they are high calorie, right, and they're high in carbohydrates. But what they do is they perturb the ecosystem of our, you know, gastrointestinal microbiome, which you know, from a on a mechanism of action standpoint, our microbiome really contributes to a lot of endocrine signaling. Our microbiome has more enzymatic functions compared to our liver, which is. Characterized as one of the most metabolically active tissues in our body, so I think there's something like 5,200 different metabolic functions that our microbiome contributes to our body. I think the liver has some 4,700 established enzymatic functions, so it's really active and. Our microbiome also uh, contributes to, you know, the inflammatory tone in our body. So if there's imbalances in our gut microbe, then we're going to have more imbalances in our immune system. And we know that our immune system is connected to our brain. So this whole gut-brain axis. So, you know, if you, I mean, people know that when they eat something, and they feel sick, you know, they, they also feel maybe depressed or, or there's some sort of, you know, gut-to-brain connection. And part of that is mediated through not only the metabolites of the microbes make, but also the interaction with the immune system and and secondarily interaction with the incretin system, which is a big point that i like to emphasize for anyone that's interested in a ketogenic diet. If we think about eating, say, carbohydrates and our blood sugar goes up, a lot of people think that 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 high glucose is what's causing a release in insulin to then bring things down. But that's only part of the story. Actually, when we start thinking about food, tasting food, chewing food, there's a pre, you know, pre-meal insulin release. It's called the cephalic phase of digestion. So our brain is connected to our gut. And just the mechanical stress or the, the mechanical exposure to food on the intestinal lining affects you know, these different cells within our intestinal lining, like the L cells and the G cells. These so-called enteroendocrine cells, so entero for gut, gut endocrine cells, and that those cause release of various hormones that help the body metabolize food in the post-mill window, and so it's a, it's this beautiful system, right, where we start to cook food, smell food, we chew food, you know, we're, we're hanging out with people eating like people should consume food, and then our body is, even before, you know, we swallow things, it's anticipating that we're getting hormones released and all that, but a lot of people that are overweight or diabetic or pre-diabetic, they've been eating when they're full, right? They've been eat, mindlessly chewing food, you know, eating when they're stressed, and so this whole neuroendocrine system is just kind of needs a reset. And it's been speculated that that's kind of how bariatric surgery helps these individuals is by making these. Turning up the dial switch, if you will, kind of the thermostat on their whole gut metabolic axis, and making these so-called incretin hormones like GLP-1 and PYY and GLP-2 and, and all these different hormones, making them amplify or re-amplify them when they're eating food. And so, kind of a natural way that we can mimic this, you know, kind of metabolic or you know, mechanism of action associated with bariatric surgery is just to slow down and, and chew our food put down the fork and, and really, you know, get exposed to the sensations and the flavors of food and, and not just wolf things down. And so that's just one of the pro tips that I offer to people. And this is where kind of fasting comes in because so many people are just, they're taught that they need to eat every two, two to three hours to stoke up their metabolism and, and, and all this, have protein shakes and meal replacements and snacks. And you know, so we, a lot of people don't even know if they're hungry or not anymore. And fasting just helps to kind of, you know, trip that relay switch, so that we know what true hunger feels like, and then we can start tuning into that and start to eat when we're truly hungry, when we're physiologically hungry, not not this perceived hunger or this perception that I think I should eat because we're actually, you know, and and so that's why we see so many people are getting amazing. Results with intermittent fasting or prolonged fasting because I think, you know, there's obviously there's more mechanisms to unearth as to how this is occurring physiologically. But I really think that that it does help to reset this whole gut endocrine axis.
0: And how, how important is it to have a vast array of diversity in the gut when it comes to the food that we're eating?
1: Oh, man, that's such a great question. You know, five years ago, I would have said it's like the most important thing ever, right? But then we know now with the people that are doing the carnivorous diet, I mean, It's not a very nutrient-diverse diet, right? I mean, and that's why, honestly, when it first came out and people were talking about it, I thought this carnivore diet, this thing is like, come on, this is a joke. Like, how could this be good for your microbiome? What about the metabolic endotoxemia, all these things? But, you know, so I I think it really depends on who you talk to and who you ask and, and all that. I mean, if we look at unindustrialized people in Tanzania or parts of Siberia, right, that are unindustrialized, no antibiotics, no hormones, no, you know, cell phone towers, all that. Their microbiomes are exceedingly diverse. But if you look at Westerners or Europeans, our microbiomes are not that diverse. And what we see with that lack of diversity is lack of stability. And so just a small insult, maybe it's a, one round of antibiotics, maybe it's taking a PPI, proton pump inhibitor for gastric reflux. And then you see asthma, and then you see food sensitivities, then you see autoimmunity. So I think it really depends. We can't just look at the bacterial diversity as the the, the thing that people need to focus on. I think it needs to be viewed in context. And for some people, if their microbiome, or if they if they have a predisposition to say autoimmunity or allergies or food sensitivities, then to be honest, the, a lot of those people seem to fare better on like a zero carbohydrate kind of carnivorous, not a lot of fermentable things in their diet, um, which is pretty much exactly the opposite of to be honest what I would have told those people to do five years ago, and what a lot of functional medicine doctors recommend. It's like no, 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 you need all these fibers because you need to you know increase this diversity but I, I don't know that that we can really outside of you know uh, fecal microbiota transplantation i don't know that we can totally manipulate our diet such in such a way that we can have these massive swings in the ecosystem because some of that It's a bidirectional system where our our immune system is crosstalking with the microbiome as well, and vice versa. So it's this inside-out, you know, outside-in crosstalk. So it's like, okay, you change the inputs in your diet, but your immune system is still kind of having some sort of effect on which microbes should be there. So, yeah, I think it's an unanswered question, but I think the important thing that people should Be aware of with that is just regular biomarkers that we can all test at home heart rate variability, sleep architecture, blood glucose. You know, so just being mindful of these things and also ketones as well. And we can get into some interesting aspects about how the primary ketone body, beta hydroxybutyrate, is structurally similar to the main short chain fatty acid produced by bacterial fermentation called butyric acid. And that's super fascinating. But yeah, so it's, I don't know the answer to your question about diversity. It's, um, there's healthy people with low diversity and unhealthy people with high diversity, right? It's kind of, there's more than we need to know, so.
0: Yeah, yeah, you're right. Great answer, and uh, I I respect that answer. I do want to get into BHB and uh, uh, butyrate, but before we do, where does seasonal eating fall into that category of vast array of bacteria? Are you a big fan? Do you place much emphasis on eating seasonally?
1: Yeah, you know, that's a great question. I I mean, I personally do, but I admit that I'm kind of hypocritical in saying that because I I don't want to sound like I'm privileged so to speak, but I say I'm grateful and I'm fortunate enough to have the financial resources to be able to do that because we have space, you know, we have garden, we have chickens, we have pigs, we have livestock and stuff like that, so I'm able to do that to an extent. But I realize certain people, you know, there's people that don't have the income, don't have the resources, don't have the space. If you live in Manhattan, it's like, oh yeah, eat seasonally. Okay, well, good luck, right? You're going to eat what you could have access to. So I think it's an important piece of the puzzle, but I think there's probably lower hanging fruit that we could all grab and then figure that eating seasonal thing out later. But it is important to keep in mind, you know? And so, for example, let's just take something that is widely considered to be healthy, like blueberries. People are like, oh, blueberries are high in polyphenols, anthocyanidins, they're antioxidants, whatever. So I should have a blueberry smoothie every day. But if you think about, well, where are you getting blueberries in Green Bay, Wisconsin in December, right? They're coming in from South America. They're shit. Probably not, even though blueberries are widely considered a health food, it's a health food out of context. So I do like people to kind of think about this in a way and to start trying to Okay, once you get the low-hanging fruit, you know, once you get the fast food out of the house, once you prioritize your sleep, get the TV out of the bedroom, get good relationships, eat mindfully, all this sort of stuff, compress your feet in window, then you start to say, okay, well, what can I do next? And this is where that eating seasonally thing can come in. And this is not like a new idea, you know. That I mean, if you look at Ayurvedic medicine, Chinese medicine, and if you really look at the course of humanity as a whole, there was no such thing as raspberries in January in Chicago, right? They have to be flown in. And that that process involves like a lot of plastic. You know, if you look at the season extension and the growing vegetables in unnatural environments, it's a lot of plastics, a lot of pesticides, a lot of things to make them ripen right at the right time. So I I do think there's an element to that. And, you know, we, we do have some science to show this. Some animal model studies have actually found i don't know how they figured out you know the seasons for rats but they were able to feed rats fruit out of season and it did affect their adiposity or the predisposition to store body fat it affected their blood glucose so there is some science here and and what we see too with even hibernating animals uh bears for example as they go into hibernation uh their microbiome changes and they actually promote more uh body fat and, and stuff like that and when they're hibernating their microbiome is different and so so there is some interaction here um but like i used to be very dogmatic about stuff and i used to just be like eat but i realized like look some people just you got to meet them where they're at but i think because you probably get messages like this all the time then where people are like i'm eating keto I'm fasting but like my results have plateaued what can i do now what am i doing wrong and so this is where okay well let's look at what are you eating like the foods that you generally eat on you know 80% of the foods that you eat, could you find them in a 200-mile radius from your house right now? If they say no, well, maybe you have got to tweak that and include more foods. And so, you know, for example, for us this time of year, there's a lot of mushrooms growing. their foraging a lot of the natural food stores get wild mushrooms. You know, we collect them out when we go hiking. Mushrooms are really amazing for the immune system. They're very low carb. They have some great uh, immune-enhancing properties, anti-cancer properties. So we'll have a ton of mushrooms. But then in the summer when mushrooms aren't available, we're not eating a bunch of mushrooms, right? We're having things that we grow or whatever. So, yeah, that's where where I kind of think about that.
0: I love it. Yeah, low-hanging fruit. Start with that, and then you could go from there. Let's talk about the ketogenic diet, which it's not necessarily a diet. It's a, a metabolic process. Let's talk about BHB and what it does to the gut, and then we'll dive a little bit deeper. I know you're a big proponent of the keto lifestyle. You've been teaching it for before it became a trending on Dr. Google. So what are your favorite things about the keto lifestyle? But let's start with the gut.
1: Yeah, what I think is, is really fascinating about this is a lot of people, like you say, kind of perceive going keto as like, okay, I just take all the carbohydrates that I'm eating, and then I swap those out for fats. I think that's part of it but we also need to realize that uh, to really be successful with this you need some form of feeding compression some form of intermittent fasting and so what i see so many people they they just they, they eat the five six meals a day that they normally eat on a high carb or standard calorie whatever a balanced diet and they try and eat that you know the, the same calories keto but they, they're snacking all the time and they're wondering why things aren't working and so You know, part of this, you have to bake in some intermittent fasting or time-restricted feeding to make it effective. And I think that's part of what you know—that little bowel reset from just not constantly having food fermenting in your gut—I think is really helpful for the GI tract. And if you actually look at the some of the earlier time-restricted feeding studies and intermittent fasting studies, they were actually not looking at weight loss as an outcome. They were looking at inflammatory markers. One of the first intermittent fasting studies at Johns Hopkins University back in I think 2002. Was actually looking at asthma levels and uh, levels of inflammatory cytokines. So we know that this just compressing your feeding window is a great way to reduce inflammation, and, and possibly part of that could be you know from a little bowel rest. But yeah, super. You know what really got me excited about keto was uh, it's kind of two things: the structural similarity that we've already talked about, and Maybe we should just quickly define, maybe if we have new listeners, beta hydroxybutyrate is a ketone body, one of three ketone bodies made by your liver. And I think it's important that people understand that if you're on a ketogenic diet, these ketones don't magically appear. They appear when you have low glucose, low insulin, and high glucagon. And part of that could be from eating you know, low carb foods, but part of that is fasting as well. And in that kind of metabolic milieu, your liver starts to make these things called ketones. And part of the impetus, part of the reason for the liver to make these things is because your brain can't shuttle a lot of free fatty acids directly across the blood-brain barrier. So your glucose is low, so your brain's like, you know, hey, liver, like, help a brother out here, we need some ketones, because ketones are just like a time-released fatty acid, if you will. So they can hang around the system a little bit longer, they can cross into the blood-brain barrier where they can fuel neurons. And so that main ketone that's doing a lot of the heavy lifting a beta-hydroxybutyrate when I figured out structurally, because I'm like, what does this thing look like? and how is it made? And so on. And I was looking at it and it was so structurally similar. Just one acetyl group, or I'm sorry, it was one hydroxyl group different from butyric acid, butyrate from the GI tract that we talked about. So bifidobacterium and lactobacilli these healthy bacteria, What they do is when you eat blueberries or, you know, you have an avocado or, you know, different foods with fiber, what they do is they'll ferment that and make this short-chain fatty acid called butyric acid. And I was talking with an autism researcher and figured out that, gosh, there's some crosstalk. There's some communication and interconversion between butyric acid and the gut to make this beta-hydroxybutyrate. So I got really excited and you know back in 2015 there was a lot of i did this project on autism this autism intensive and there was a lot of data coming out showing that uh, autistic children do really well on a ketogenic diet and i started to kind of dig into that so that was one thing that's that's super exciting about that uh, to me because the main fuel for our uh, colonocytes the cells that comprise the colon is this butyric acid and it's not just like a Like a fuel source, it's a signaling molecule. And that's just what I love to emphasize to people because the food that we eat, it's not only just providing energy, it's affecting genetic expression and signaling. And so if we, it's kind of crazy to think about, but the cells in our eye are the same cells that make up our nose. They're literally the same information. So imagine if, like, you know, if, if you have two books with identical content but the information is different like the words are exactly the same so our genes in every cell are different but what makes unique cell types different from other cell types like the eye versus the nose is the epigenetic expression so the information that changes or influences how our genes are expressed is is referred to as epigenetics and it turns out that both beta-hydroxybutyrate and ketone when you're in ketosis it's a powerful epigenetic modulator. It affects sirtuin pathways. It affects a myriad of different pathways that influence genetic expression, mostly in a favorable manner. And so that, that to me, once I started to figure that out, I was like, oh my gosh, this is amazing. Like, Why is no one talking about this? And so that's kind of why I interviewed a lot of people. But I think it's an important message that we all need. Someone might want to hit the rewind button and, and Articulate that in a way that resonates with them. But our colleagues or coworkers, our family members, they're gonna say, oh, keto, it's all about bacon and butter and you know, pig, and you know. But that's not really what it's about. It's about longevity, it's about you know metabolic flexibility. It's about this ability to eat a diet that will cause increased levels and secretion of metabolites that are favorable from a long-term health perspective. And I think that's where a lot of people they miss the boat and so i like to talk to people about that and that's where food quality comes in so i understand if you can only afford to eat at mcdonald's and take the bun off the burger like that's i started doing that in high school i get it but we got to move beyond that that's not really synonymous with long term health uh, you know so food quality is important uh, dietary quality is important and then implementing some form of feeding window compression helps the body make ketones more readily
0: yeah, and I, I tell people all the time, if you skip breakfast, you'll get that money back and you could use that to spend on something a little bit more high quality when you are eating. Uh, and I love how considerate you are, Mike, because y- y- you could teach what you do for a li- your life, but you are – Blessed, absolutely. You have your own garden, you, you have the finances to get the organic foods, myself as well. I'm I'm blessed. But you're very aware that not everybody has those resources. So I love how you're considerate for, for those out there who just don't have it right now. But you do the best with what you got, and it's the awareness first and foremost to have this information, and then you can start chipping away at the low-hanging fruit, like we talked about a little while ago. When it comes to the keto diet. There is no cookie-cutter approach to keto because you're right. If if somebody says, oh, yeah, I heard about keto, it's a whole bunch of cheese and bacon. And yeah, you're right. That can be keto. doesn't necessarily mean it's promoting longevity, promoting health, but it could get you into ketosis. Absolutely. But what me and Mike talk about, our lens is a lens of health and longevity. Is that accurate when I say that, Mike? Yeah, 100%. So uh, I'd love to talk about, because I get into the the bile production, the liver-gallbladder connection, how important that is when you are starting a ketogenic diet, when you're eating all these healthy fats. For the gut, to break down the fat, to remove toxins, could you talk about the importance of healthy bile production? Oh man,
1: bile is is so... Fascinating. Yeah, that's something uh, you know, I talked a little bit about in the book, Belly Threat Effect in 2014, but yeah, these bile acids, I mean, if you look at it, where they're found in the body and it's not just in, in the kind of liver gallbladder, you know, intestines, these things make it all the way to the heart. So there's bile acids found in the heart, in the brain as well. And for the first time, actually in Jan- uh, June of this year, uh, there was a study that showed that altered bile acid metabolites from bile sludge, presumably gallbladder sludge, and and or eating crappy fats, things like that, really predicted independently scores of mild cognitive impairment and pre-dementia. So it's it's so important and so underutilized the importance of bile, the importance of you know healthy fat digestion. And so I'm a big fan of and promoting it when people get started, bile salts and, and things like that. Taurine is something that's concentrated in bile. Uh, gut health in general, when people are constipated and their bowels aren't moving and they're recirculating bile acids. I mean that that's you know not healthy. So yeah, and, and I think this is probably actually one of the mechanisms at play here that we haven't yet, I should say we researchers haven't yet. Really elucidated, and that is that. Assuming that you're, you know, compressing your feeding window and eating healthy fats, this churn or this turnover of bile acid metabolism and more bile flow, it probably is part of one of the mechanisms at play here on the ketogenic diet. And um, Again, I'm just speculating, but we know that, that bile is so important. So, yeah, I highly recommend you know people that uh, if they have a, a, an issue digesting fats, you know, um, you know maybe. Maybe having you know not quite as much fat uh, with every meal, you know, c- cutting things back a little bit, getting into ketosis through exercise, compressing the feeding window. Like you're gonna have to be a little bit creative and crafty uh, and think outside the box. But you know, again, eating cheese and bacon is not the only way to get into ketosis. So You can you know manipulate the other levers that you have going on there, and maybe so you're not having 100 grams of fat with a meal. That's gonna be hard if you don't have a gallbladder, or if you have slow. You know, bio sludge from eating crappy food, things like
0: that. Yeah, exactly. If you want to get into ketosis, it's not necessarily high fat. It's it's low carb. And you could go low carb through exercise by burning off your sugar reserves, through fasting by burning off your sugar reserves. So it's not necessarily high carb. Bile is so important. Uh, I agree with you. Bile, I say bile is beautiful and bitter are better, meaning bitter rich foods ginger, arugula, even some cranberries could help stimulate the bile, and using ox bile is what I recommend, so bile salts. So great tips right there. This is one of those episodes, if you're watching or listening, that you might want to listen to or watch a couple times to really just grasp it. Uh, Sit down, take some notes, and if you're interested in doing keto or if you're doing keto and and fasting, this is definitely a podcast that you want to understand really well because it'll get you the results that you want. I have a question here, and I saw a video you just did recently on (laughs) game changers game changers if you don't know what that is but most people do it's a documentary uh promoting a plant-based vegan lifestyle and there's a lot of money behind it it's a well-done film they did a really great job with the production of it but what's the problem with that film could you just extract some things from your talk but i want them the audience to to go and watch that video you have on youtube all about game changers but can you just share some things from that video
1: yeah, yeah, I'd be happy to. Well, I mean, like you said, I mean, it hats off to the production team in that video. I mean, it's super compelling. I remember when it first came out, I got flooded with phone calls from people saying, gosh, I'm going vegan, you know, didn't you watch this and all that? And they, they kind of portray the vegan diet as this, this cure-all approach. And and uh, it, they, I think they're really trying to appeal to athletes, which is what I gathered. But I, I mean, look, I mean, what, Anyone that's been in the space for a long period of time have tried different diets. I mean, I wouldn't, you know, kind of make make a video rebuttal of that. I've tried a vegan diet. It, it simply does not accelerate your healing, recovery. Uh, if anything, it's it's the opposite and you get more inflamed uh, and less, you know, uh, recovery. So, you know, a few things that they, they talked a lot about that I just really kind of have an issue with was this kind of this idea, this premise that if you eat a vegan diet, um, it, it's going to somehow... Um, make your vascular endothelium the cells of your vascular system kind of regenerate you're going to sprout all these new blood vessels but if you eat uh any uh, any animal products it's going to basically uh, reduce how much blood flow you have and cause you know uh, everything from erectile dysfunction to heart disease and all that and you know the the thing with that they don't really read that people they they omitted from the film is you can eat uh, a bunch of plant-based foods You know, for example, I mean if you go eat French fries, potatoes are derived from plants. You fry them in plant oil, you can cause endothelial dysfunction. If you have high levels of glucose and insulin, you're gonna cause you know vascular dysfunction. So it's there was no my problem with that is that film could have actually been way more convincing if they were like, we're talking about vegetables and fruit. I mean, a lot of people when they go plant-based, they're eating processed food, like like the impossible burger, beyond meat burgers. Loaded with canola oil and highly susceptible oils that are prone to oxidation, so it's it's not. I have no problem eating vegetables and fruits. I have no problem with people doing that. And if they want to really construct a diet that's rich in these compounds and and, and maybe ferment or sprout um, some grain products in season, I have no problem with that. But the funny thing is, is you didn't see any of the food people ate until the very end in the credits. And they showed, the, you know, that indoor pursuit cyclist. They showed the bodybuilder guy, the strong man. And they're eating crap. It's like all these, it's, it's bread and pasta and a lot of grains. And if you look at the food pyramid, you know, uh, that, that's what people have been eating. That's what we've been told to eat. And so they're saying that, you know, it's its meat consumption, it's animal product consumption. That's really the, the reason why there's all this epidemic of obesity and type 2 diabetes and cancer but I mean, if you really look at meat consumption as a whole, it's actually down over the last 10 to 20 years compared to how you know, people used to consume meat. So I think it's great marketing. It leaves a lot to be desired. And they handpicked some of the athletes. I and mean, if you look at some of the strongmen, you know, that strongman guy, okay, so he's super strong. He can lift a car and do stuff like that but the look at Brian Shaw or Hawthorne Um, these guys, I mean, you know, they follow the vertical diet by staying efforting, which is a lot of red meat. These guys are, with all due respect to, to that athlete, much stronger, uh, you know? And so, and they have a lot of Tennessee Titans football players, okay? With all due respect to the Titans, uh, have they even made the playoffs in the last few years? I mean, I, I mean you know, so it's like, there's a lot of stuff going on there. There's a lot of people talking about it, but I would just say there's there's some. There was no emphasis, and this is I think no one can can say this criticism is biased. There was no emphasis on whole real foods. It was just like, well, it's plant based. It does all this. You know, these these athletes had a bean burrito, and all of a sudden they had way more spontaneous erections. So I find somewhat hard to believe. So yeah, it's it's kind of an interesting film. People should watch it with a grain of salt. And there's been a ton of reviews out there from people like myself and others who are like, look, what about this? What about that? So if you have no nutrition training and you watch that, you're probably going to be so convinced you're going to go plant-based afterwards, which is pretty scary.
0: Yeah, that's what they're banking on. They're banking on people who don't really read research like you and I, who don't really understand how the body works. And a lot of people are getting Pulled into that. You know, vegan, the vegan lifestyle, I have no issue with it as well. You could do it the right way, right? I don't think it's healthy long term, but I think you could do it short term the right way. I was also a vegan for a year and a half back in 2013. First few months, fantastic. I felt a lot better. My infl- inflammation went down. And then I hit that vegan wall. And back then, I put myself in that dogmatic box, which a lot of vegans do, unfortunately. And my health suffered as a result, but it took me a year and a half before I got into Paul Check's work. And I realized, oh, well, maybe I'm hurting myself here. And that's actually when I started to go into the ketogenic lifestyle, back after I went from vegan to keto. So it's, it's doing much more harm than good. The Game Changers film is, and it's unfortunate. But we'll continue getting the message out there. And we don't want people to just believe us. We want you to have the research and do some of your own research. And piece your, piece your puzzle together, and you'll see what we see, which is there's a lot of bad information in that film. There's just a lot of um, propaganda and fear-mongering. I had Paul Saladino uh, early on this week on my podcast. I know he was on yours and and you guys uh, have some good content together. He mentioned that he's getting a guy on his show who was an athlete, a vegan athlete He was supposed to be in the film Game Changers, but he got so sick he got off the film and he's going to interview him for his podcast. So that's going to be interesting. But I I encourage the listeners and viewers to go to uh, the YouTube, High Intensity Health YouTube channel, type in Game Changers and go watch Mike Motzel, just break it down. There's also great Paul Saladino also has a good video with Dr. Ryan Lowry. So there's some good videos out there to really understand this stuff and look at the research. Anything else you want to add to that, Mike?
1: Uh, I would say that, um, you know, that was one of those videos that I wasn't even planning on making a video. That was on Monday. And I posted this Instagram thing and people were like, you got to make a video. So I turned the camera on and went for it. So it's not like some cinematic production quality video. So just throwing that out there. So that's another reason why people just have to make content. Like if you're thinking about doing something, it can be knitting, it can be basket weaving, just get out there and make content, you know, and and people will, they, they like the raw stuff I found.
0: Yeah, and I heard you saying on one of the podcasts, you just wanted to get this episode out there. So even with the mess ups that, you know, if you made a mistake, and I love that. I love that because you're right. Speed of implementation, just getting it out there and just look at what Mike's doing. There's no, I mean, perfectionism is just a fancy word for procrastinator, okay? So just get it out there. And Mike's a perfect example of that. Uh, not to say that you don't have episodes that are finally edited and you take the time for it, but that doesn't stop you is what I'm trying to say. Okay. You talk a lot. Uh, there was an interview with you and Dr. David Jockers who's actually coming on the podcast soon about the parasympathetic tone how important it is to focus on breathing deeply using the left the left nostril uh taping your mouth at night could you talk about the importance of activating well what is the parasympathetic tone and why is it important to activate it on a daily basis
1: yeah that's an awesome question so our our nervous system kind of has two personalities you know sympathetic fight or flight state which is great in situations right uh and if someone kidnaps your your son or daughter, like you're gonna go into fight or flight mode, right? If something, you know, a building's on fire, like you need that, but we also need the balance, the rest and digest and procreate side. And so this is like when you go on date nights, you have a you know, great meal with your spouse or partner or whatever, uh, that feeling of just being calm, at ease, you don't need to, to check in Instagram, like everything's good. But the situation is so many people are just hung up in this personality of our nervous system in this fight or flight mode. And so we need, to, we need to be proactive about unwinding that. And that's where enhancing activities, or participating in activities that improve the parasympathetic nervous system response. And so this is how yoga is effective. This is why meditation is effective. And if we look at meditators, even the brains of meditators and people that do yoga, they're different. And so I used to be super wound up Always fight or flight. And, um, you know, thankfully, I guess when I hurt my back in 2002, I started to get into yoga and figure out that, wow, I could study better after I did yoga because I, I couldn't lift weights for like a year. It really sucked. And uh, so I got into yoga and I've used that ever since. You know, my wife and I, we do actually tonight, we're going to do yoga. It's like a date night thing. So I think it's great to just figure out ways to connect with your breath because that can activate this parasympathetic branch of our nervous system, which is not only just about feeling like a yogi and zened out, there's anti-inflammatory properties to our nervous system being activated in this state. Uh, this it's complex, but this whole cholinergic anti-inflammatory reflex arc, a lot of people don't even know about or talk about, but that's really activated when we're in this parasympathetic state. And so this is actually a, a you know fasting gets a bad rap for uh, how it's stressful and how fasting raises cortisol. But if you actually look at the the uh, autonomic nervous system, which is what we're talking about, there is a pivot towards this increased parasympathetic tone, maybe as a means to mitigate the high levels of adrenaline and noradrenaline that are created to refuel and, and to kind of redistribute fuel in the body. So. This is where I think a lot of people, when they start fasting, they'll realize that their heart rate variability, which is a great indicator of our body's parasympathetic nervous system response, our HRV will start to increase. And that's what I noticed with the ketogenic diet as well, is my heart rate variability will generally improve. It was easier to get into this parasympathetic nervous system response because if we're eating a lot of carbs and glucose, we get this yo-yo effect where our glucose is high and then it drops down. And then we need this fight or flight response to bring glucose back up and this constant Tug and pull on our nervous system. So, if we just have low glucose levels and higher fats, it mechanistically, and also fats when we ingest them, going back to the you know, liver, gallbladder, fat absorption, fats tend to affect this this whole reflex arc as well. So, it's super important. And you know, if you look at heart rate variability and mortality, if you look at various you know cancer outcomes, uh, cancer reoccurrence, congestive heart failure. All-cause mortality. I mean, this is this is not just woo-woo stuff. And there's hard data showing that low heart rate variability suggests you're not going to live as long compared to people that have higher heart rate variability. And the cool part about this, this isn't like a gene defect. There's something you can do here. It's very I don't want to say malleable, but it's very modifiable, and that's what's really cool. And so, how you choose to respond to stressors in your life. With a deep breath, or if you want to yell and flip someone off and honk the horn, that that's totally your choice. But those choices compound over time, and so uh, I used to be that guy. I used to be so impatient in driving. Uh, actually, it's a funny story; no one even knows this. But it, but I got my license suspended in 2010. Uh, it was the end of 2010, just driving like an asshole and uh, honking and flipping people off and speeding and all this stuff. And I got so many tickets, so many steam tickets that my license got revoked. And it was in 2011 that I learned heart math and learned that wow, I because I knew that I was causing major like driving was the most stressful for me and I, I would like come back, and my heart would hurt and I knew it was bad and I was just like man, if I ever get a heart attack, it's going to be in traffic. And now I just I don't let it bother me, and I, I'm totally cool listening to an audiobook. You know, I, I try to learn Spanish in the car. I'll meditate. I'll do whatever, and it's so much more enjoyable. And so now those things don't piss me off. And, You know, is it keto? Is it fasting? Is it mindset? It's probably all of those things put together. But folks, don't overlook this. It's it's really powerful.
0: You mentioned something about um, when you're fasting. There's a pivot towards the parasympathetic tone. When does that happen? Because I know the first 24 hours you're activating the sympathetic tone. When does that pivot occur?
1: Some of the studies are different on that. So I mean, you definitely are activating that stimulatory fight or flight side, but it's it's speculated. That as part of a compensatory mechanism, that the parasympathetic tone will increase to counterbalance the adrenaline and the noradrenaline and Got the it. So what time? I'm not really sure. But what we see is after say three, four days, it almost becomes impossible to sleep because you're like super your adrenaline's going. So I think it's more initially, but then as you fast for longer, and just to pause here. I, Adrenaline and cortisol get a really bad rap, you know, because people are like, oh, they're stressful. They're stressful well, yeah. But they also induce gluconeogenesis and you need some glucose, like your brain cells, your you know, your, your red blood cells, your retina absolutely needs glucose. There's obligate glucose utilizing cells in the body. So uh, people are scared of gluconeogenesis. People are scared of glucose. You need to have it. And that's why these, these, these counter-regulatory hormones increase. And they're also those hormones also do affect fat release from fat cells, which help in the ketone synthesis process. So it's not all bad. Uh, people poo-poo cortisol and adrenaline. Like, oh, stress. you know, fasting's so stressful. You're like, there's a reason why these hormones increase. Like, it's, it's called natural selection revolution. Or do you want to believe in intelligent design? Whatever you believe in, the body does stuff for a reason, right?
0: Yeah, the body is so sophisticated, this innate intelligence. It's, it's literally pumping you full of energy to go out there and hunt and, and do your thing. But you know the hack is that we're just going to use it to crush our day. Uh, with that being said, if you're somebody who's very high strung, you're an A type of person, and you have so much stress in your life, then maybe doing OMAD every single day is not a good idea. So there are always special considerations here. And we're just trying to let you know that there is no cookie cutter approach to this. You got to just extract what resonates with you and then you experiment like Mike just experimented with his facial hair (laughs) recently and you figure out what works what doesn't work and you just you move forward from there final question for you Mike this has been a lot of fun first of all so thank you what is the most exciting thing that you're working on right now
1: oh gosh good question I'm working on a new book and so that's been fun to uh, do some research for that because what I like to do is, I know people crank out books like every year and stuff, and I'm, I'm not like that. I like to really kind of master topics and understand them, and then I can write about them on a level that people can understand. So, yeah, the new book is going to be about kind of fasting physiology, autophagy, and longevity. And, uh, you know, really kind of figuring out this whole NAD metabolism, and there's all these supplements now, like nicotinamide, riboside, NR and NMN, and all that, I'm trying to figure out, you know, really what the data shows when it comes to eating a low carb ketogenic diet. Cause we know that when you're in ketosis, your body doesn't burn through as much NAD and NAD is an important cofactor for all these longevity enzymes. So, you know, just trying to, um, and you know, maybe I shouldn't you know, try to understand the topic and such high level of depth and things like that, but I really like to try and figure things out and how it connects to other parts of the body. So, um, Yeah, it's been fun diving into some of that stuff because there's a ton of research out there. It's a, it's a like a, because drug companies are trying to look for ways that they can mimic or mitigate this these metabolic uh, targets, and so they think there there will be like the next blockbuster drug because you know everyone cares about uh, living healthier, longer, and all that. And so, um, thankfully, we have a lot of data out out there on that and try to figure it out. So, yeah, that's kind of what, what excites me.
0: That's exciting. Do you have an estimation on when you think the book will be out?
1: Yeah, I'm thinking March range. Yeah, so I'm almost done with this one part, and then um, I have quite a few chapters written. And then, so yeah, March.
0: Do you have a title? Uh, not
1: yet, and yeah, I'm playing around with a few things.
0: Awesome. I'm excited for it. Well, I'll make sure I, I share it when you uh, have a title and you have a place for people to go and pre order it. Mike, I really enjoyed the conversation today. I love the work you've been doing. You're such a stand-up guy. We had uh, our first in-person conversation a couple years ago in Washington. And uh, you just want to educate. You want to teach people what you're learning. And I see that from you. You're very active on Instagram, so go follow Mike. It's at High Intensity Health, is that correct?
1: Metabolic underscore Mike, yeah.
0: Metabolic underscore Mike. I'm going to put that in the notes. So I want to acknowledge you and say thank you for the work that you're doing. You're always showing up. You're making big moves. I love to see your actions, and I'm always inspired by you. Where can the listeners and viewers go find more of your work besides the Instagram handle I just mentioned?
1: Sure. Um, yeah, super simple. So my website is High Intensity Health, and that's also my YouTube uh, and then I'm on Facebook, Mike Muscle. So if you search any of those things uh, and if you enjoy this content, you can send me a direct message on Instagram or YouTube or comment and, and just say, you know, you heard, it, heard me on this conversation with Ben, I'd be honored. So uh, yeah. I appreciate your time, buddy. It was awesome that, uh, you know, a lot of people say like, oh yeah, I want to like pick your brain. and I want to grab coffee. But you were like, dude, let's let's meet. Let's meet at the community location where you are. So we met in Kirkland about a year and a half ago. So that was awesome. I really appreciate you coming out making the time. Hope you guys enjoyed Washington State when we were up here.
0: We did. It's beautiful there in the summer. In the summer. <laughs> That's the caveat for me. Yeah, I had a great time. So thank you for today, Mike. I had a lot of fun.
1: Yeah, my pleasure.
0: Hey, thanks for listening to this entire episode with Mike So I really hope you got tremendous value from it. Mike is doing amazing work out there, so be sure to go listen to his podcast. Go subscribe to his YouTube channel. Show him some love on Instagram. Take a screenshot of this episode and tag both of us on Instagram. My handle is at thebenazadi, T-H-E-B-N-A-Z-A-D-I. And Mike's Instagram handle is Metabolic underscore mike if you haven't left the show a rating and, and review already please do so on apple Podcasts, apple itunes leave a quick review for the show it really makes a big difference and be sure to check out the notes of this podcast we put together detailed notes resources everything we spoke about you could find in the notes section of this podcast including timestamps in case you wanted to go back and dig a little bit deeper into what mike shared about we have Rachel who puts this all together for us. So go check out those notes. Take advantage of that. Absolutely, you, you'll benefit from what we do with those notes. As a reminder, if you haven't claimed my free 12-page ebook designed to teach you how to master keto and fasting, head over to ketokickstartguide.com for a free download today and subscribe to the Keto Camp YouTube channel if you haven't done so already. We're releasing a brand new video about every single day on that YouTube channel, that's youtube.com slash KetoCamp. You could also watch the video version of this interview with Mike on that channel. Hey, thank you for listening to this entire episode of the KetoCamp podcast with Mike Mutzel. I am super grateful you'll hear me on the next episode.